focus on in clear, vivid, 4K HD. Hope you guys have a ready player here tonight in the church room. Just to give an example of that, as we look at this bi-weekly, weekly, which you will see soon as we do publicly read the passage that we're going to focus on today. And I'm just excited about this. Hope we can pull it up. Hope you have that this time. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on him their cloaks, and he sat on them. <clears throat> Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, we do need your help. The things of your word are spiritual appraise. And God, we do have to engage our minds. We do have to engage our hearts. But we pray in the midst of us doing these things that you would engage the power of your spirit to help us think rightly, to say rightly, and then God, as we leave this place, to do it. We need your help, and we ask for it confidently in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right. Anybody ready? Verse 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Let's stop right there. Now we followed Jesus and his men and this crowd. And the last time we saw them, they were they had left Perea, which was Judea beyond the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, and they had made their way towards Jericho. Okay, that's we talked about Zacchaeus a couple weeks ago, just real quickly. And then the two blind men that Jesus healed just outside of Jericho. So now they've left Jericho and they're coming west, and it says that they're coming near Jerusalem to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. And some of you are saying it's Bethpage, it's not Bethpage, by the way. I have been corrected all week as I've listened and watched and read and looked at translations. Bethphage, it sounds terrible. Bethphage. So they've left Jericho. They're moving west towards Jerusalem, and they're really close. And they come to Bethphage, which is a town, to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is right there. Bethphage is on, on the lower end. Let me see if I can turn it into the screen. We're going to need this for something. I don't know if you can see that or not. You see the pin there. Over on the far right is the River Jordan. They bend to the east side of that. Now they've come through, and they've come past Jericho, and that red dot is actually right there at Bethphage, okay? So that's where they're at, and I don't know if you can see it or not, but just barely southwest from Bethphage is Jerusalem. Yep, that's where they rested this week. Y'all have told Jesus will come back and forth from Jerusalem to Bethany, which is almost just to the southeast there at Bethphage from where they are right now. So that's where they're at, okay? As 
crowds are making their way to Jerusalem for the annual Passover, Jesus finds himself very near the holy city, Jerusalem, at the Mount of Olives in this town called Bethphage. Now, the word Bethphage means, listen to that, the house of unloved figs. That doesn't really mean anything to us today. A couple weeks when we talk about Jesus cursing the fig tree that there was a fig on, so I might be a little bit more prominent. But just so you know, the word Bethphage means the house of unripe figs. So they're on the Matthew tree, they're in Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives. Now, you're going to see that name, um, the Mount of Olives, and, and, and this place, the Mount of Olives, will be very important in this final week of Jesus' life. And remember, now here we are in Matthew 21. We'll start in Matthew 21. 21, 22, Matthew 23 are going to be evidences of Jesus' authority shown plainly. And then you've got 24 and 25, which is the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, and he's talking about how the, the temple is going to be destroyed. He's talking about end time stuff. I'm super nervous about those two chapters, by the way. Super nervous, pray for me. Uh, we may just linger a long time in 21 through 24, so we don't have to deal with 21 and 25, but we'll finish that. No, I'm just kidding. And also, there's less descriptions, but it's big. But anyway, um, and then 26, 27, 28, it details the crucifixion and the resurrection. So 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, eight chapters out of the 28 deal with the final Jesus' life. Okay, it's a lot of detail, and it's super important. And the Mount of Olives is going to be important in that time. We're going to see, uh, after he gives the Olivet Discourse, he's going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is there on the Mount of Olives. And actually, when Jesus ascends into heaven, it's from the Mount of Olives. So there's a lot going on here with the Mount of Olives. A lot of action there. And here in our text today, it is from here that Jesus sends two disciples. Now, we don't know which two. It doesn't tell us. You say, well, not Jesus had a father or son. We don't know. We don't care. If God didn't tell us, we don't need to know. Okay? If it's not important, we don't keep disciples less. Any of y'all got a story on that? So, he sends two disciples. What are these two disciples doing? Verses 2 and 3. Saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Okay. So, he's sending two of his disciples to the village in front of you. That's Bethphage. Okay, he's on the Mount of Olives. He's sending them to the Bethphage. And he says that when they get there, immediately they'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So these two disciples are to untie these two animals and bring them to Jesus. So Jesus is sending them to steal donkeys. Jesus is a donkey thief. That's, that's not true. Okay. So, so my theory is this. Okay, I'll tell you this. I think one of these people because it's like they stole donkeys. They just came from town. All that stuff. They just had donkeys with them. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so he's not a donkey thief. He gives them some explanation. He says that if anyone says anything to them about getting these two animals, they are to say to those folks, the Lord needs them. And they will say these magic words, one of the donkeys will sing at once. Now just marinate in this for a second, okay? Jesus calls two of his men to him. He says, go down the hill into the town, and when you get there, you'll see a donkey with her colt beside her. And these two men are to untie these animals and bring them to Jesus. Now, what if you're one of them? You're going, hey, what's that? You want me to just go untie some animals out of something? Oh, it's okay. Just tell them the Lord needs them. And they're like, okay. All right. Look up Palestine Grand Theft Auto for me. 
in the right way as my Peter says. Not really. He says that they need not sweat any repercussions because all they have to do as they're hot wiring these donkeys is to tell the owner that the Lord needs them and then it'll be okay. And they say, okay, got it. And off the hill they go to hijack these donkeys and it's a crazy one. This whole scene is crazy. But there's a method to this messianic name. Jesus is going into the city of Jerusalem in a specific way. And he needs a donkey and her colt. Why? Verses 45. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A bird. And of course, you know, there's a lot going on in these two verses. Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, records and shows that this whole process is not just Jesus being lazy and killing donkeys, seeking some upgraded transportation. That's not what's going on. It was literally prophecy from several centuries before this day. The Holy Spirit reveals to and through Matthew that what's happening here is a fulfillment of two different passages that Matthew, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, rolls into one here. The two passages that make up this uh, prophecy are Zechariah, Zechariah 9-9, and Isaiah 62-11. Let me show you what they say separately. So Zechariah 9-9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's Zechariah and then Isaiah 62-11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Now, there's some things that are included and some things that are excluded from these two passages in this statement that Matthew makes. Again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And while the flow in Matthew is most closely tied to the Zechariah passage, it does incorporate hints and parcels of, of the Isaiah passage as well. And what has God said? He has told the Israelites to rejoice and sing their salvation as their king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, not just a donkey, mind you, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And again, this is four, five, six, seven hundred years before Jesus was even born, okay? And this is exactly, and I mean exactly, what Jesus had told his two disciples to go and return the colt. He said, go there, you're going to find a donkey with a colt beside her, a colt, the foal of a donkey, and bring them to me. So this isn't just Jesus having hired thieves that was the cause of all this. The actual, literal reason why Jesus sends these two disciples to go find this donkey and this colt is because Centuries before, God has said it was going to happen this way. God had promised that when the king of Israel came into town, into Jerusalem, in order to bring salvation to his people, he would come into town mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, the beast of burden. And so, as Jesus comes, he knows exactly what he needs to do. Now, my question is this. Solomon, okay, Solomon brings horses into Palestine in mass. He goes down to Egypt, he goes
being carried, he's being tortured, and he makes, in the time of Solomon, donkeys become just beasts of burden. They just carry this stuff on their back. Important people rode horses. Important people, kings, rode in chariots with processions. With donkeys being relegated to carrying just burdens, carrying things in front. Donkeys didn't carry kings anymore, but that's also part of the deal, too. Because Jesus is not coming with a blaze of glory. He's not exerting himself as a conquering king or military king. No, God had said in the prophecies that he would come humble and mount it on a donkey. And that's an important part of the prophecy is the donkey. Yes, he's going to come on the on a horse, on a bowl of donkey, but he's also going to come humbly. Jesus' humility is in direct opposition to what would be expected from this crowd that's all around them. They're expecting their king to free them and reign over them in hope and joy and freedom and power and glory, but here's Jesus fulfilling the plan that has him humble and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. More on that in a few, but verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Okay, that's pretty straightforward, right? These two guys, whoever they are, these two disciples of Jesus went and did as Jesus had directed them. Jesus told them to go into town and immediately there threw a donkey and a colt tied on. They are to untie the animals, bring them to them, and when they're asked, they are to tell them that the Lord needs these things. And they did just as Jesus directed them. Actually, both Mark and Luke record that the owner of the donkey does indeed ask what's going on. Hey guys, what's up? Why are you untying my donkeys? And they say the Lord needs them. The guy's like, cool. And it happens exactly the way Jesus said it would be. So they bring the donkey. Verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Now that's some weird wording, right? And if you get a picture of Jesus sitting on two donkeys, you got it wrong. Put their cloaks on the back of the animal. Now, which animal do they put their cloaks on? Now, remember, the prophecy was that Jesus was going to be riding the colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's the young donkey, the colt, that gets the cloak, and Jesus sits on the colt, on the cloak. So then what Jesus is sitting on is the cloak, not the two animals. But the question is then, why? Why God bring those animals? Well, both Mark and Luke record that this colt that Jesus is riding had never been ridden before. Anybody ever heard of a donkey or a mule being stubborn? Yeah, they are. They're naturally stubborn animals. Okay? And now you got a crowd, probably in the millions, some of them in Jerusalem, and you're going to bring a colt that's never been ridden and sit Jesus on top of it and say, now take me into town, colt or donkey? That's probably not going to work, right? So this has never been ridden, and so the presence of its mother, who had been trained, who had carried people before, is going to walk beside this colt, help this colt navigate the crowd, and it's kind of calming things down, doesn't it? Sure, genius. And 
course, the maker of that coat literally would be on his coat's back, and he would know how best to know which mother was going to give him the coat. So Jesus sits on the coat with the 12 of his disciples separating him and about to leave. And he begins his route, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in this way. And so how did a crowd do that? This great throng, this rabble, heading for the town alongside and around the donkey, bearing the Messiah. How did they respond? Look at verses 8 and 9. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, not really, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Things are about to get interesting. The crowd, this growing, swelling throng, traveling along the road up to Jerusalem, has bought into Jesus' fever. Over three years of miracles, teaching and serving, has this crowd fired up thinking that they are accompanying the king of the Jews into his glorious arrival to take up the throne, to reign and to rule. It says that most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now we see the same type of activity in ancient Israel. In 2 Kings 9, when Jehu was made king, they did the, the similar thing there. And also, interestingly enough, if you have any uh, recollection of what we talked about in the intertestamental period with Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean revolt, when Judas Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem, they did a similar thing. Okay? It was a custom to show understanding and acceptance of a newly appointed or crowned king or ruler. And so these folks who are yearning for deliverance from Roman oppression spread out their cloaks, their tree branches, and welcome their king in joyful adoration and displays of coronation. But they didn't just let their cloaks and branches do the talking. It says they went before him and followed him shouting. Now I won't shout again, but just imagine them shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now again, this statement that they're shouting is loaded with implication. It is a proclamation wrought from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Very familiar, they had sung this as a praise song. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So this is messianic talk here. This is full-fledged, no mask, no filter. They are talking about the Messiah. The, these Jews are saying that this Jesus, this man, on this coat that they spread their coats and branches out for is the Messiah. And using the psalmist's words, they say, and no wonder they shout, what they are preaching. And that thought is that this Jesus is coming to save them. This Jesus is coming to give them success. And they bless him and praise the Lord for him. Now just imagine, okay, all these years, all this time, under the yoke of servitude before rulers dating back to the 700s B.C., all those years of servitude are coming to an end. This Jesus is going to free us, and he's going to give us success. Praise God. All the bad stuff's going to end. It's our day. It's our time. God's doing what he always said he would do. He's freeing us. He's, here comes the guy. Praise God. He's going to bring us success. 
where you see this, they're thrown in the stone of judgment, which is what we saw two weeks ago. It's a total open stone. And they call out to this son of David, Hosanna. And that means save us. Actually, it means save us now. That's literally what it means. And derived from that messianic psalm, they see it happening right in front of their eyes. And they're saying that now is the time. And praise God for it. Now, picture yourself in the place of a first century Jew making the journey into Jerusalem for the Passover. He's done it year after year after year. And as they climb the hill to Jerusalem, does anybody remember what they sing as they climb the hill to Jerusalem? The songs of ascent as they're ascending up into Jerusalem. And as they climb the last mountain into Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms or these songs of ascent, which are Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. They would sing the same songs year after year as they climbed this mountain. Now, I wanted to read all these, but it would just take too long. Okay? But just picture, you're, you're one of these Jews, and you're singing these songs of ascent, and you're working toward Jerusalem. Let me just give you a sample of what these songs of ascent said that they would sing. Each time they approached the city and they set images to the city. Here's, the, here's just a sample. And I'm, I'm going to get down to it. I'm going to really incorporate what they start saying here. Okay? So get this picture. The songs of ascent. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And the laughter that says, come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Stand by might in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. And that crescendo brings them to the top of the hill. And now you see Jesus sitting on a donkey. And they start shouting, Big old crowd shouts of joy into the holy city. And when they enter, the whole place, swollen with over two million people, gets so stirred up. 
those who showed up actually to shout, to agitate, to cause trouble, to be thrown into a tremor, to quake for fear, to agitate the mind. The whole city is quaking and shaking, minds blown and agitated. And those in the city seeing this mobile messianic welcome wagon come rolling into their town in full force, proclaiming Jesus as the son of David, the king of Israel. And the people in Jerusalem ask, who is this guy? They're hearing this Messiah has arrived, but this guy on this colt's back is the king. And they ask, um, who is it? Now, Jesus is wildly popular by this point. But in this major scrum, the people of the city probably can't even see who all this stuff is. And I'm sure that there were those who didn't know who Jesus was. It's not like he looked like a king in their town. No, he would have been some obscure rabbi from nowhere who wrote a book. So the mob comes, and the city folk in Jerusalem ask, Who is he? And their answer, that's right there. And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now watch. And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, yeah, but no, not really. The crowd was proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah. Hosanna, glory to God, save us now. And when asked who this guy is that is going to save them, the crowd told us Jesus, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And while it's true, it's woefully short of who this guy really is. They see him as a prophet, which that's good. But a prophet from tiny, neglected in the of Nazareth, a nowhere town for nobody. And how do you make the transition from Messiah to prophet so quickly? Isn't that a quick turnaround? Save us now. Save us now for Messiah. Who is that Jesus from Nazareth? Who's prophet? It just seems like a quick turnaround to me. Even if they are saying this as a way of showing their excitement, it shows that their excitement is not nearly excited enough. They're missing this whole thing. They think they know what's going on. They think they know who Jesus is. But they're only introducing their version of. They're only introducing their perception of who Jesus is. And they don't see the full picture. They're rejoicing, crying out over deliverance now, freedom now, God's favor now. But they don't know what that means either. They know the prophet Jesus. They can see him with their physical eyes from Nazareth in Galilee. But they don't know Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of man, the son of God. They're looking for deliverance, and they think that this prophet from Nazareth will give them what they want. But Jesus is coming to save them now in a way that they're not ready for. He will not take a man-made throne. He will not establish the nation of Israel here. He will pick up a cross, and he will save men from their sins. And if he would have told this mob that, that that was what was about to happen, they would have wrinkled their brows and said, uh, no, he's going to restore the nation of Israel to a form of glory. He's going to free us just like he's right in Jerusalem. They climb onto his throne. It's going to be awesome. He showed his power over and over and over again. He healed people. He delivered people. He raised people from the dead. And they misrepresented him. 
and right here, they're going to count on him. And they're going to call for his crucifixion. Not knowing that his deliverance of them can only come in that way. And not in any other way. Sound fair? That is the just payment. The very instruments of God. All one way. And the question is, how do we do it? The return of our attention back to our first point. What's the point of this passage? How does it affect our living? We're going to look at application three, three C's, and they're not ready for this. I apologize in advance. Hope, hope, hope. There is one. Okay? Hope, hope, hope. First point of application is vehicles with the president and the longest, most impressive limo that you've ever seen. Now that's how important people travel into town, y'all. Ever heard anybody say, your president has come riding in a Pinto? Some of y'all are like, what's a Pinto? Trust me. It's not very fancy. You've never heard that. You've never seen a president in a Pinto. Kings ride majestic
it's probably not going to look like what we would want it to look like or even what we think it would look like. We would direct God and tell him how to do what he's doing. But guess what? It doesn't work. John MacArthur says you have to take Jesus as he comes, not as you want him.
we'll cover different kind of conditions. If it's what most people are doing, it's probably the wrong choice. Kingdom mind. Remember Matthew 13? Remember the parable? And Jesus purposefully hiding truth from the crowd so that they wouldn't understand and turn. And then he goes into the house and he tells the priest and the council of ragtag disciples. The crowd was clueless. And listen to me, the crowd is still clueless. We have been exposed to various attempts to draw us into the cult of personality in our day and time. And I'll cite the most authoritative source I can for defining cult of personality. I go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia defines a cult of personality this way. And be careful. Don't shut me out and don't amen me too quickly. Neither nor. A cult of personality or cult of believers arises when a country's regime, or more rarely an individual, uses the techniques of mass media, propaganda, the big lie, spectacle, the arts, patriotism, and government organized demonstration and rallies to create an idealized, heroic, and worshipful image of a leader, often through unquestioning folly and courage. A cult of personality is similar to an apotheosis, which I've never heard of before. Look that up on your own. Except that it's established by modern social engineering techniques, usually by the state or the party in one party state that run that party state. It is often seen in totalitarian or authoritarian countries. today in our politics for sure. I think we see it in the media on a large scale and in whatever general uproar the public or the masses are in a fervor over. The crowd in our passage today was looking for a king to overthrow Rome and they elevated Jesus to that position to what they wanted and they made him into what they wanted.
into the cult of personality. We are guided by one singular, wildly unpopular truth, and that is God is to be glorified before and above all else. And let me tell you, church, that is directly contrary to the ways of the world. The world calls for the glorification of the self, the exaltation of the popular cause of the day. The mob will determine what those things are. Dissolution accountability to an unchanging, overarching, absolute truth, and you will be demonized by the mob that is supposedly calling for the good of the individual. And it comes across in statements like this. Who are you to be so arrogant as to think that you can determine what truth is? Who are you to foist your antiquated beliefs on other people? Why would you want to stand in the way of progress?
spirits connected are bound. Be very careful, church. We are navigating a culture that is a death trap for all of us. As parents, you have your job cut out for you. To raise your kids according to biblical principles and not ceremonies. Kids, this is your faith. Bring it all to Christ. But they are trying. And they're trying to navigate this mess that we're all in. That looks like God's not even perfect, but He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the 
and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of This is big. You're going to live differently. And not only are you going to live differently, you're going to call other people to live differently. Because the king is coming. And when he comes, he's not on the throne of darkness. He's on a white horse, and he is making war with the enemies of God. And he's going to win. So then what? How should we live? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Paul says in Philippians, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, what David talked about here when he, before we came to the table, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opinions. This is a clear sign of one's their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Don't you care about what's going on? Look, they're living. They're looking out for themselves. They're looking out for you. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's what does this mean? Paul is clear, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Not the little foolish of the mob. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. We saw the right to cry out, Hosanna. We saw the right to say, God, forgive us now. Do something now. And when you see the Pope coming, any sense to you, don't give in to the voice of the mob to tell me there's got to be a different way of behaving. Go back to the preordained path that has been laid out through the very voice of God for all eternity past, into time, from the past, up through today, into the future, and through eternity future, which is the clarion call of God to be made right with God through the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That story will not the world will not accept it by and large. That doesn't mean that we change it. That doesn't mean that we tune our instruments to a different tune so that it makes sense to us and to the world. We cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and we trust God to do what only he can do. And we don't live like the world. 